U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action connects you to the leading minds in agriculture. Join Farm Food and Facts host Joanna Guza to explore the latest in sustainable food, fuel, fiber, and more across the value chain. I may have mentioned it before, but I'm a dairy girl from Wisconsin, so it's always exciting to learn about new topics with you on Farm Food Facts. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. Today we're headed to Maryland to learn more about grain. A few interesting facts that I wanted to share with you from the Maryland Grain Producers website is that Maryland typically grows soft red winter wheat, and it is consumed by chickens and used to mill flour for cookies, pretzels, and pastries. We'll also be talking about corn, and you typically hear farmers talking about corn in bushels. Well, a bushel of corn is 56 pounds. Now let's gain insight from expert Lindsay Thompson. She is the executive director for the Maryland Grain Producers Association and Utilization Board, and also the owner of Hidden Potential Farms with her husband, where they farm 130 acres of corn and soybeans. Today, we're going to be talking about unique markets and value-added opportunities for grain farmers. Let's first talk about that unique market aspect. Can you share about the unique market relationship between Maryland grain farmers and poultry farmers? Absolutely. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. So we in Maryland enjoy a great relationship with the poultry industry. So a lot of people may not know, but agriculture is the number one industry in the state of Maryland. And a lot of that is thanks in part to our poultry farmers. So on the Delmarva Peninsula, which is Maryland, Delaware, and a little bit of Virginia, there's about 650 million broiler chickens produced in any one year. And that provides a great market for the local grain that is grown in Maryland. And so almost 100% of the grain grown in the state of Maryland goes to feed chickens. And so we really appreciate that market for our grain here locally. You just gave a little bit of insight about how the poultry industry is so key. You know, why is it so important to Maryland grain producers? The poultry industry is absolutely key to profitable growing of grain on a large scale that is able to support family farms because we do not have the same markets that some of the Midwestern farmers would have as it relates to ethanol or export markets. And so having that local market here to support our price that we are able to receive for grain is absolutely essential. And from the sound of how you were talking about how the market's made up, it seems like it's all staying kind of in on the East Coast. Does that sound accurate to say that a lot of your grain isn't being sent to the West Coast? Yes, that would be accurate. So most of the grain that is produced, I would say, in the mid-Atlantic region is consumed within the region or on the East Coast. So it's either going into poultry production. We have a little bit in Pennsylvania that goes to ethanol production. And then most of our wheat goes into flour mills in Pennsylvania. So all very local from a consumption standpoint. So we know whatever animals are eating is key to the, you know, their diet and then you know, the end production of them being consumed. Does the poultry industry share any requests when it comes to how their grain is grown? Some things that are important to the poultry industry from a feed quality perspective would be things like 
test weight as an example. So you mentioned at the beginning that a bushel of corn weighs about 56 pounds. If you can increase that test weight, so as an example, my husband and I were cutting some corn the other day that had a 61 pound test weight, right? Then they're getting more bang for their buck as it relates to a bushel of corn specifically. And so from the poultry industry, they really focus on the grain quality side of things. And then if you want, we can talk a little bit about the wheat quality side of things and the requirements that some of the flour mills have around the milling quality wheat. Yeah, please share some more insight on that. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, Maryland grain farmers grow what's called soft red winter wheat, and that wheat is primarily used in pretzels, cookies, pastries. So fun fact is if you've ever had an Auntie Anne's pretzel or really any other kind of soft pretzel, that wheat very well may be from Maryland just because soft red winter wheat is used to produce those products. Also things like goldfish, which who doesn't love goldfish? And so when you are growing wheat for milling quality versus feed quality, one of the very important things is the protein content in order to make that wheat be able to improve dough performance, as an example. And so typically we're looking for about a 12% target on the protein content for that wheat and some things that we do as farmers in order to ensure that protein content is about our nutrient management. So looking at the application of one of the essential nutrients being nitrogen and ensuring that the crop is getting that nitrogen at the right time and the right rate to support the protein quality of that grain. That's really interesting. And is this a new idea or has this been something that's been around for a while? The idea of the quality that's required for milling wheat is not a new idea, right? So there are some programs that, for example, U.S. Wheat Associates at the national level do on education around milling quality wheat uh, for the millers themselves, understanding what works best for them. But as far as the management perspective, we are still trying to figure that out, right? So Maryland Grain Producers Utilization Board does research on an annual basis with our land grant universities in Maryland and Delaware around how can we help farmers from an agronomic perspective achieve the goals that are being requested of them by the grain buyers. So for example, we are currently funding a study with Dr. Nicole Fiorellino at the University of Maryland around nitrogen management to achieve the target protein levels in wheat. Very interesting. I I know being from Wisconsin, we always hear about how important nitrogen is, but I never really heard about it in terms of protein. So thank you for sharing that insight. And later on in this interview, we're going to talk about some of those value added opportunities for grain farmers in Maryland, but still want to stay on that crop that you're growing. So what conservation practices are Maryland grain producers implementing? 
We like to say that Maryland farmers are on the cutting edge of conservation in agriculture. So maybe just a little bit of background about grain production in the state of Maryland. So there's about 1.2 million acres in agricultural production in the state of Maryland. And then based on the 2017 census, and these numbers will fluctuate from year to year, but we're growing about 73 million bushels of corn, about 11 to 12 million bushels of wheat, plus some barley and sorghum as well. And one thing that I think is interesting is out of those 1.2 million acres, on any given year, Maryland farmers plant between 300 and 600,000 acres of cover crops. So, you know, more than half of our agricultural land in most years is planted in cover crops. And so those cover crops are planted in the fall. They grow over the winter and they protect the soil from erosion, as well as take up any excess nutrients from the soil from the previous crop in order to protect those nutrients from loss into waterways, specifically the Chesapeake Bay, which is right in the middle of our state. But Maryland farmers are also known as some of the founders of no-till, and so that is planting our crops without the utilization of tillage of the soil. And so again, that helps to protect the soil from erosion. That also helps to reduce the carbon emissions into the atmosphere from breaking up that soil. And it improves soil quality, overall organic matter, the ability of water to filter down through that soil um, and get to the crops when they need it. And then the last one I'll mention, which this is not an exhaustive list. I have a farmer who actually one time put together a list of all of the conservation practices that he's doing, and it was about 41 different conservation practices. <laughs> but Maryland farmers are regulatorily required to have a nutrient management plan. And so that's just our plan of the total amount of nutrients that we are allowed to apply to a crop. It started as a voluntary program back in the 90s before it was made mandatory and farmers have really taken the bull by the horns kind of when it comes to nutrient management and are using that plan as a way to advance not only the environmental benefits coming from managing your nutrients, but also the agronomic and economic benefits that can be achieved by really paying attention to how you are feeding your crop. Right. And what was the take? Because actually in Wisconsin, it's not mandatory to have a nutrient management plan, but a lot of farmers have seen the value of it, just like all the reasons that you gave. You're putting nutrients where nutrients need to be in the field. When it became mandatory, was everyone on board to do that? I won't say that everyone was on board to make it regulatory, right? And because when you put things in regulation, oftentimes there is a one size fits all and in agriculture that doesn't really work, right? Every farm, every field, even subfields are different. And so over time, we've been able to adapt those plans to work for kind of every farmer. It also means more paperwork which I don't think any farmer is going to be supportive of. But I will say that at first, when it was a voluntary program, 
it was widely accepted. I think they had over 90% adoption at the time that it was a voluntary program. And so it was less of an impact when it turned regulatory. And they've really kind of learned how to make those plans work for them from, again, an agronomic and economic perspective as well. Well, Lindsay, we know that chip bowling plays a really big role with U.S. farmers and ranchers in action, as well as the Maryland grain producers. Can you tell us some of the conservation practices he's implemented on his farm and how he's sharing the conservation message? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, Chip Bowling is currently the vice chair of U.S. Farmers and Ranchers in Action. He's a board member on Maryland Grain Producers Association and also a two-time past president of National Corn Growers Association. And he farms just about 45 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. And his farm is directly on the river that is a tributary to the Chesapeake Bay. And so Chip not only has always been very passionate about the implementation of conservation practices on his farm, but also educating other farmers throughout the country through his roles in these national organizations about conservation and the agencies out of D.C. And so Chip does everything from no-till to cover crops grassed waterways to help filter the water, buffers around the river and different wetlands. He also does precision nutrient management, so applying the nutrients where they are needed and when they are needed. And he has hosted a variety of groups from U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the USDA, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and even international groups, groups from China that are learning about conservation practices. And so I think that that's a really important thing. It's not just about the implementation of conservation practices, but also sharing what you have learned and what you know and how to do that with others to make an even bigger difference, which is, I think, something that agriculture is really good at is that peer-to-peer education as well. Right. And making sure he's sharing that message with decision makers. So kudos to Chip and all of his efforts. Lindsay, now let's transition to talk about how Maryland grain producers are utilizing poultry litter as an organic fertilizer. Can you share more on that? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite things to talk about because we have a really cool kind of local cycle going on with the poultry industry. We talked about how the chickens eat the grain that we grow. Well, then those chickens excrete waste and that waste can be harvested out of the poultry houses and transported to the farm fields where they need it and applied according to our nutrient management plan to provide nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, as well as a whole host of micronutrients to the soil and organic matter. And then we are harvesting those crops again to go back and feed the chickens, right? (laughs) And we're also harvesting those chickens to feed people all in the same area. And so we really appreciate kind of that symbiotic relationship that we have for feeding the chickens and then the poultry litter feeding the crops. And it is a slow release 
organic source of nutrients. And so it, again, really works out from a, a cycle perspective. So I have a little hobby garlic farm and I've done some research on chicken litter and it has a lot of nutrients. Are there any challenges you have to be careful when applying you know, poultry fertilizer? Because I know I think about the person that maybe has like a backyard, you know, six chickens that they shouldn't just directly add that on their garden because it could have implications because it is such a strong nutrient. Can you share some insight or background on that? When you look at the analysis uh, from a nutrient perspective of poultry litter, it is a little bit heavier on phosphorus than it is on nitrogen. And so in Maryland, our farmers can only apply poultry litter up to the phosphorus need of a crop. And so if you're looking at using it for a backyard garden, I would encourage you to speak with your university extension, like master gardener program, to understand what the nutrient needs of the produce that you're growing are so that you can ensure that you're producing it, applying it at the right rate. The other thing that you have to be careful about is the pathogens that, you know, potential. So growing grain is a little bit different than growing produce where you are directly consuming it. So you'll want to make sure that you're applying it at a time that would not impact potential bacteria getting on your produce as well. We don't have those same issues in grain production, but something to consider. Right. Now let's talk about some of those value-added opportunities. What are some of the value-added opportunities for grain farmers in Maryland? Something that has come about, I would say in about the last decade, has been the advent of things like breweries and distilleries in Maryland. So we have a lot of local breweries and distilleries, some of those actually being on farm. And so how that relates to grain production, as an example, barley is used for beer. No barley, no beer, right? <laughs> And so we actually have a malting house that has been put in Delaware, creating a local market for barley grown in Maryland that is of the quality that can be used for creating beer. So that's been a really cool experience to see some Maryland beers pop up. And then the other is the distilleries making things like whiskey, and from whether it be corn or rye, we actually have one distillery. It's called Tobacco Barn Distillery that actually won the Heartland Whiskey Competition here recently for the farm brewery category. We actually also last year in the state legislature, you know how Kentucky bourbon mm -hmm. is a thing, right? So that's their state spirit. It can only be bourbon if the grain is grown in Kentucky. So we designated Maryland rye whiskey as the state spirit. A lot of the distilleries that make rye whiskey with Maryland rye are hoping to set up a rye trail similar to the bourbon trail that they have in Kentucky. And so diversifying that market outside of just the poultry industry or just the wheat milling industry for that local demand has been a great diversification experience for some of those local farmers. 
Well, Lindsay, you just convinced me to book my plane ticket to Maryland to go check that out. So that's really, really interesting. And I know so many farmers are looking into that that value added. For a farmer that might be listening, what advice do you have for them to get started in the value added aspect? I'll start with a couple of the challenges that need to be overcome, right? Things to consider. So one thing that we experienced early on when some of the breweries and distilleries were looking for local grain is the scale. Mm -hmm. So our farmers are used to taking tractor trailer loads with a thousand bushels of corn, as an example, at a time to the mill and doing that 10, 12 times a day during harvest, right? The breweries and distilleries are looking for much smaller quantities at different intervals. And so considering things like having on-farm storage to be able to store that grain and deliver it to the brewery or distillery customer at the interval that they can use it is one thing to consider. And then also we have some farm breweries and distilleries, like I mentioned, and zoning has been a problem for a lot of them. So if they are an agricultural land use from a zoning perspective at the county level, just making sure that they have all of the right permits and approvals in place to actually be able to have that value added agricultural system on their farm before they jump in with both feet, making sure that all of the red tape and regulatory stuff is in place. Right. Making sure you have all your ducks in a row because it it sounds like a really good idea, but right, there are going to be some challenges and bumps in the road, but hopefully um, the opportunities outweigh some of the challenges. Last question for you, Lindsay, and, and you wear two different hats. You're an executive director of the Maryland Grain Producers, and then you're also a farmer. I'd like to get your perspective from both angles. What trends are you keeping an eye on uh, in terms of grain farming? First, I'd like to say, and this is something that I have said to my farmers, that even having grown up in agriculture, so I'm 10th generation on my family's farm, my children are 11th, so even having grown up in grain production specifically and working for grain farmers my entire professional career, I never understood how difficult it was until we actually did it ourselves. My husband and I started farming in 2020. Not a great year (laughs) (laughs) to get into farming. There was a lot of supply chain issues, inflation, market demand. It was a very complicated year to become a farmer. I did want to put that out there as that has been one of the most striking realizations that I've had between being an executive director and actually being a farmer is that I don't think you can understand how difficult it actually is until you try to do it yourself. As far as trends that I see in grain production from the executive director perspective, we are really looking at the regulatory side of things as well as markets. So from a regulatory perspective, just ensuring that farmers continue to have the freedom to operate and the tools that they need in order to be as efficient as possible. 
One thing that we're seeing is a lot of attention to pesticide regulation, herbicides regulation as well. And something that a lot of people might not realize is that herbicides are a tool that allow us to do a lot of the conservation practices that we do. So without herbicides, it's very difficult to do no-till as an example or cover crops because you need those herbicides to kill the cover crop before you can plant the next crop or you have to do tillage, right? So just understanding the relationships between some of those tools and why we need them from a conservation perspective. And then also from the market perspective, ensuring that we continue to have the market for our corn specifically for ethanol as well as the export market. And people might say, well, why do you care about that? All of your corn in Maryland is going to the poultry industry. It's not being exported or going to ethanol production. The overall system supports all farmers' prices for their grain. You know, farmers are the one of the only industries that buy retail and sell wholesale. <laughs> you know that as a dairy, dairy farmer. <laughs> And so grains are traded on the Chicago Board of Trade as commodities. And so the overall supply and demand supports the prices for all farmers. So I would say those two things are kind of my focus from a executive director perspective. From a farmer perspective, the trends in technology are just so exciting. So I actually sat down with my grandfather yesterday great timing. So my grandfather's 85. He drove his first Ford tractor when he was six. His dad put flags at either end of the field and just said, don't take your eye off the flag. And he said he remembers feeling like it took him forever to get from one end of the field to the other. But just thinking about the advancements in a relatively short period of time as it relates to equipment, GPS guidance, precision agricultural technologies, seed genetics. So that was another super striking thing for me was my grandfather has a plaque in the office at the farm that he won the county corn club no-till category in 1977 with 141 bushel corn. If he grew 141 bushel corn today, he would cry, yeah, right? right? Like we'd be calling the crop insurance agent. It would be absolute disaster. But at the time, that was great, mm -hmm. right? And so thinking about the seed genetics and the advancements in efficiency that genetic modification have allowed us in agriculture to achieve growing more food on less acres with fewer inputs. And so the trend in technology is what I really see, you know, companies working to make agriculture more productive, more efficient to be able to feed the world. And so that's what I'm really excited about is getting into those technologies and how they can support us from an agronomic and conservation perspective is really exciting to me. Lindsay, that has to be probably the most real answer I have ever <laughs> received interviewing a farmer and getting that perspective from the executive director and the farmer role. I mean, you really laid out 
there's going to be those challenges, but there's a lot, lot of opportunity. And, you know, those opportunities are endless for Maryland producers. So I want to thank you, Lindsay, for your time and your commitment to being an advocate for agriculture. We also appreciate your precious time for listening today. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. Tune in again. I'm Joanna Guza for Farm Food Facts. 